Hey friends, this is Holly Bame Lytle, and you're listening to Isaac's Autism in the Wild podcast, where we focus on topics related to raising loved ones touched by autism and its impact on relationships and family. I'll be sharing some of my personal parenting experiences, raising my son Isaac, who passed away in 2007, as well as an entirely different parenting experience as I now raise my son Caleb, who never ceases to blow my mind with his beautiful autism perspectives. So grab a drink and join me as I interview this week's panel of exceptional autism parents. All right. Thanks for joining me. I have a couple of guests today. This is part two of Wandering and Eloping on Isaac's Autism Wild podcast. And my two guests today are Lieutenant Matt Coles with Spokane Police Department and Lieutenant John Goodman, also known as Holly Lytle. Goodman's husband um, is joining us. John is with the Spokane Fire Department. He's been on quite a few podcasts talking from a parent perspective. Not as much on previous podcasts have you put on your professional firefighter hat to talk too much, have you? I'm trying to think because we've been podcasting now for a couple of years and have had them live for years. So it's kind of hard to remember all the different episodes we've recorded. So anyway, um, Matt, you're unique to my life in that you actually are one of the few people that actually knew my son, Isaac. It's true. It is true. So I had Isaac and Tyler and they were very close together in age. And your two daughters were also very close together in age and the same age as Isaac and Tyler. So um, we did a lot of play dates back in the younger years. And that's how you knew you definitely didn't want to have boys because there's a big difference between boys and girls and your girls are just the sweetest little things sit so nicely and play and are gentle and then enters the Lytle boys and not so gentle, not so calm. So anyway, it brought a special spice to our lives. It, it really did. Now, I don't know that you ever, because you knew Isaac from gosh, I mean, before we even knew he had autism up until um, when he passed away, but we did have some wandering instances with Isaac, although I think most of the time they were at my mother's house, which was down the street from where I lived. And my mom obviously was not providing the same level of supervision as maybe what he would get at home. So, um, so we did have some wandering episodes. Fortunately, whenever Isaac wasn't someplace where I could find him, my biggest fear was the roads, because if he got on one of our county roads out there, people tend to drive fast. And my biggest fear is he was going to get hit by a car. And so um, also for Isaac, he was one of those kids that would like to travel on the road most traveled because he liked the familiarity and um, like he had an idea where he was going. So he was less likely to just wander through the woods because that wasn't something that we did ever. Um, but he would hit the county road and start heading down to check out some neighbor cows and different oddities like that. But um, I brought you on this particular podcast because with working with the Spokane Police Department, is it fair to say that you have had or been involved in um, searches for loved ones with autism and other special needs? It would be very fair to say that. In fact, <laughs> okay. today we had two calls of that nature. Okay. Okay. And so when they come in, um, one of the things first and foremost, and we talked about this in the first part of the episode is I had a couple of parents join me and talk about their stories of their children wandering. Um, Maria number one, cause I, both moms were named Maria. So that was a little confusing. So Maria number one, who had Josiah, which actually you've met Josiah before. Um, yes. Um, he actually has had a long history of wandering. And so, um, Maria mom one was able to share quite a few different stories. Um, and 
one of the things I can say first and foremost, and we talked about this in the first podcast, we are very lucky in Spokane. And I'm sure both of you guys will agree because um, you've been involved in some of the training programs, but Spokane's first responders are very highly trained to be able to interact well uh, with individuals with disabilities, correct? I would certainly agree with that. In fact, yeah. uh, on one level, I think uh, our first responders in our area could be titled uh, professional students because we do spend a lot of time in the classrooms and uh, learning how to interact and work with a variety of different people. That is so true. And one of my favorite things that you said, Matt, is, is that um, when we were first kind of diving into the topic of um, of training for first responders, you, what you said to me was, Holly, like you're acting like these are aliens that we have never encountered before. And I thought that was so like funny and appropriate because you're right. My parent perception and my prof professional profession at that moment was that police officers and firefighters must have no clue what they're doing. And he pointed out like you're acting as though these are aliens that we've never encountered and don't know how to interact with. And so that really put me in a place where I was like, you know, that's so true because as first responders, both, I mean, Matt, how many calls do you guys respond to a day? Not necessarily with people with disabilities, but in general, on a daily basis, how many calls or interactions do, does your department have with the public? Uh, <clears throat> well, hundreds, maybe thousands on a daily Depending basis. Depending on the day. <laughs> when I was a patrol officer and responded to calls, I would go to uh, 13 to 15 a night. So, uh, you know, that's a hundred people a day. Yeah. And so John, like, so with the Spokane fire department, you've been with them, Matt, you've been with the Spokane police department for over 20 years. And John, you've been with the Spokane fire department for over 20 years. That's correct. Okay. So John with the Spokane fire department, which serves the city of Spokane, how many calls do you, does the city of Spokane fire department run on a daily basis? Um, I would say a hundred plus ish. Okay. And of course, it depends on the day because well, obviously 40,000 a year divided by 365. Okay, there you go. Perfect. Okay. So again, I think it's really, we have to put in perspective and both of you guys have been really good about coaching me as a person to understand that part of what we're dealing with when we're working um, with first responders is the public's perception. Okay. What part of what we want to do in this podcast is is really work on parents' perception of first responders so that you all have a, a level of comfort knowing that your first responders are very well trained. Um, it's not that, you know, you guys just rolled off the turnip truck and you've never encountered a person with special needs. So you do in Spokane, we have a lot of training. Um, also you guys run a lot of calls. And so while be, it would be very difficult to really dial in how many of those interactions are with people with disabilities, you guys work with a variety of individuals, whether it's children all the way through adults. Correct. Yep. See, I feel like this is, you know, like a, not an interrogation, you guys. You guys are staring at me like this is an interrogation. But let's talk about parent perception because I feel like um, a lot of what we're working on is putting parents' mind at ease um, in terms of your guys's, I say guys, guys and gals's ability to interact with our loved ones. And we're talking about wandering and eloping. So with that being said, John... In case this is the very first podcast you have ever listened to, John, would you mind giving me a little um, summary of your background and why your um, what you bring to the table is a little unique? So, so as Holly mentioned, I've been a firefighter for about 20 years, uh, paramedic for about 12, and uh, worked on the truck a long time. 
And um, so I had that perspective from a, you know, first response, first responder background. But I have my middle son, Cooper, who is now 17, uh, who is uh, ASD level three, which is, uh, you know, pretty affected uh, autism and has had some wandering issues in the past. Um, with Cooper, it was lucky because he wanders with purpose. So a lot of times we can we can track him down relatively quickly. But uh, that being said, when it's... Uh, uh, you want to go ahead and share one of the wonderful stories of Cooper's escape? Well, um, yeah. So um, I had game cameras set up all around my property when I lived kind of remotely in New, uh, Newman Lake. And um, a couple of them were you know, three quarters of a mile away from the house on small trails I'd made with the four wheeler. And, and I'm checking through because late season archery is open and I'm kind of looking for a particular buck. And <clears throat> this one camera I looked at, there's about six inches of snow on the ground, mind you. And it's probably in the, you know, twenties and thirties temperatures, not too cold, but not too, too great. And I'm thumbing through the pictures after working a 48 hour shift. And I see a, uh, a blonde Bigfoot, uh, in my camera <laughs> And the time is 1230 at night and blonde big. And what was he wearing? Blonde Bigfoot is wearing his underoos and that's it. No, no <laughs> shoes, no socks. And so if you're familiar with hunting season, what month was this? Uh, December. So, so uh, here's Cooper. Uh, he saw the flash and then looked at directly at the camera and I got a good picture of him. Uh, and luckily, like I said, Cooper. He made it home himself. So you had no. And he. Wanted, he probably wanted to go out to see something out there and then turn around and come back. The problem was it was completely pitch dark. And, you know, physiology being physiology, he could have very easily succumbed to uh, hyperthermia out there. Uh, he didn't, luckily. And the thing was, is uh, my ex was none the wiser until I showed her the picture. And I said, hey, uh, you know, this is probably a good idea if we keep tabs on him because this may not end well the second time. So uh, we were lucky in that regard that Cooper found his way home. And he didn't get eaten by a bear or a bobcat or a lion or something crazy other mountain lion. Because there was some of those there types was, pictures was. on that same Correct. on that same micro disc. Um, there was other game on there that were not the like the doughy deer eyed variety. So so it was a little scary. It's one of those things with with Cooper. Uh, he is kind of oblivious to danger. Uh, so uh, you brought up roads and, and roadways uh, earlier in a previous conversation and. And really, with him, it's it's a big concern. So if I'm in an area he's not familiar with, um, even though we've traveled to this place numerous times, I would definitely uh, jump right on the, you know, getting on the horn and letting somebody know. And of course, you know, you're looking the entire time, um, but uh, you know, knowing your child and what he's attracted to and what he's where he's been around in that area is, is hugely important. And their, yeah, and their habits. And I think too, knowing Cooper the way that I do, I think again, he rides on these four wheelers, does these loops where you're checking your, you know, cause when you go and check your game cameras, he hops on the four wheeler and he, that's part of things that he enjoys. So he would know that loop because he's traveled it numerous times when you check your game camera loop. So, and that's one of those things too. When we have families who have kiddos that are wanderers, one of the things I always tell people, parents is always have that mental list of like their routes that you're traveling, obsessive interests, um, because that definitely knowing your child and being able to provide that to law enforcement and your dispatchers um, is really useful information because you guys can hit the ground running quicker. Um, now, when Cooper was younger, he used to get out of the backyard. Yes. And here's one of my big pet peeves when I 
you know, we post, you know, and we know that there we're looking for a missing child and who may have autism, missing children in general, but also missing children with disabilities. I'm almost always tagged in those posts on social media asking for help. And when you start reading the comments and I stopped reading the comments because people can be so unkind things that people will say is, well, if you kept an eye on your kid, then this wouldn't happen. And so when we talk about this, um, talk about Cooper, because when he was younger, he would have a unique way of getting out of the backyard. Yeah. So oftentimes he'd climb over, climb over the fence and jump the neighbor's yard and they didn't have it. So it didn't matter how many locks you had on no. gates and, and it was a six foot yeah, fence. He, he was very agile and was able to discern his way through a lot of that stuff. And, and really we were lucky. We had a nosy neighbor lived at the end of the cul-de-sac and oftentimes she would call and say, Hey, Cooper's out here in the cul-de-sac running around. And, and that was, you know, fortunate because at that age he was uh, young enough that, you know, could have been snatched pretty easily or, you know, gotten headed out to a, a main a main road. We didn't live on a main thoroughfare. Thank God it was a cul-de-sac because uh, it happened numerous times. It really did. But like I said, our nosy neighbor noticed first. So it was good. I mean, sometimes, <laughs> well, sometimes nosy neighbors, neighbors is a are, good thing. And believe me, yeah. if you have a child with autism, you'll get to know them. Yeah, for sure. So that I thank you for sharing those stories. And and I will tell you, even now, Cooper doesn't necessarily wander. He always has a purpose, but we have to be really careful because one of his favorite things to do at home is he's the garbage patrol. So if the garbage can is full, he wants somebody to tie the sack for him and then he takes it out to the garbage can. And we live on 10 acres. And so we have a longer driveway. And um he one day, it's Sunday is the is the day where we take our garbage can to the end of the road so that then the um the garbage truck can come on Monday. And he brought me the sack of garbage and wanted me to tie it. And I said, Oh buddy, you know what here? Uh, we can't take it out. I already took the garbage can to the end of the road for the garbage truck tomorrow. So we'll put this in the laundry room and you can put it in the garbage can tomorrow. Now this was February and it was an extremely cold spell in February where it was like zero degrees. And he, I wasn't paying attention and he got out of the house with his garbage sack and he walked without a coat with socks only all the way to the end of the road. And there was snow and ice on the driveway. He walked all the way down our driveway to the end of the road to put the garbage can in there. When he got back inside, he was bright red um, because he was wearing a short sleeve shirt and just socks on his feet. And I felt terrible because that was just a misfire on my part because I should have been careful about, um, you know, I should have just, you know, went, got him with a coat and shoes and we should have just walked down there and, and handled it. But um, I learned my lesson. So now, you know, just that hypervigilant, he came right back. But the fact that he was outside in zero degree weather, um, taking the garbage sack down there again, I'm sure if we had closer neighbors, not you, Matt, um, people would be like, what in the world are these people doing? Making their kid walk the garbage to the end of the driveway because, you know, neighbors don't necessarily understand. So there's a variety of reasons why our loved ones um wander and elope. Um, Matt, from your perspective with the Spokane Police Department, you have what I call frequent flyers, where in other words, we have them, they are chronic wanderers. And um, you probably get a lot of calls during the course of a week or a month looking for them. Uh, true? True. Um, we try to get them connected with resources right away so that we don't. But in the past, we've had... Uh, uh, I can think of one child in particular who would run away daily. And when he'd run away, he would leave Spokane city and end up in Spokane Valley or Liberty Lake or deer park. Yep. Or and so it was a real, and he was nonverbal and couldn't care for himself and really was unaware of what he was doing. I think. 
but was resourceful in his ability to be able to get out of the Very city. Much so, yeah. And uh, uh, a lot of times the <clears throat> children will kind of sneak on behind an adult, and the adult won't necessarily notice on the bus. to get on the yes. bus. To get on the bus, and yeah. the bus driver will just assume that the kid is with the uh, the adult, and then get off at a random bus stop down the road. Which is just terrifying. Yep. Yeah. And and that's where too, you know, one of the resources that you guys use is you refer them to the Isaac Foundation because we do try and help families work on breaking that pattern. We've also in the past, I have recalled, and it may not been an interaction with you, but some of your other um, officers will reach out because we'll have, you know, a frequent wanderer. Um, but part of the thrill is law enforcement finding them and then returning them. And so some of what we're working on too is not reinforcing that behavior. So for some of those kids where the thrill is that they like law enforcement and they like that, the joy of, um, police coming and finding them. And then oftentimes what happens, they get a little ride in the police car back to ground zero home. And now we've just reinforced that loop of a behavior that is not acceptable. And so we've had to get creative in terms of like, okay, so this might be a situation where we don't send law or, you know, law enforcement is aware of the situation, but, um, we're not reinforcing it by um, having the officer engage with them in a conversation and certainly not giving them a ride or a sticker or something along or a sticker those. or something. Yeah. Because again, we're working on positive perceptions. We want our loved ones with autism and other special needs to have a good rapport with law enforcement and fire department personnel, but we have to be careful because it can actually work against us because then they figure out that, Hey, I love these guys. They're so great. They give me stickers, high fives, fist bumps. And now we've got, we've worked ourselves into a different type of situation. So we are aware of that. Um, I don't think that situation happens as often as just the, I'm bored. I want to go do stuff and I'm out of here. Um, by and large, um, most of the time your interactions with kids with special needs and autism is very positive. Oh, overwhelmingly so. Yeah. Yes, exactly. Do you think that that's just a generalization of them just generally um, naturally loving law enforcement and fire department? Or do you think it's because it, we're unique in Spokane that we spend a lot of time doing special needs station visits where we're actually working very hard to acclimate our special needs population to first responders? Do you think it's a natural that, hey, we just love anybody with a badge or a uniform? Or do you think that some of the work that we're doing just acclimating our loved ones to first responders helps? Uh, I think that the acclimation and the the station visits and those things is very helpful. Uh, the training that police officers have gotten, it's also been very helpful, but I think that a police officer or a fireman in uniform is such a novel and unusual experience for so many of these kids who have a natural friendly disposition mm -hmm. is so unusual that, uh, that, it's kind of like bees on honey. Yeah, well, it, it takes them, if they were on track A, it changes the track and they have to, or they process something new. And so that takes them off their current course. Sure. Um, one time, you and John oftentimes will come to community events, community engagement events with me. And we have a table to do outreach to the community in terms of um, explaining the training that we help um that you guys do independently um, on your own, your own department seek out on your own, and then also training that we help 
um, partner with you guys to provide. And then our special needs station visits. Um, and there was one time when we were at the Garland street fair and you were there and John was there and this woman comes up and I think it was her kiddo. I can't remember if it was her kiddo or grandchild. Um, and she, you were there in your uniform and she brings this child up to the table and she says, um, look, there's a police officer. If you don't fasten your seatbelt, he's going to take you to jail. And I will never forget your response. Um, because it really like, um, has stuck with me all these years is ma'am, that really hurts my feelings. You know, like, you know, I'm actually here to help. And, and you had this nice conversation about it and why that is so, problematic. And so do you want to talk a little bit about parents who will use that type of language in order to try and get their kiddos to comply with rules? And so let's talk a little bit about that because that feeds into that perception of the fact that then kids have a natural fear of you guys in your uniform because parents, I mean, and I'm going to throw my sister under the bus a little bit because she used to say that all the time to my nephew. And so that really resonated very um, closely in my life because I didn't really think about like how that plays out long-term. So would you mind talking about that a little uh, bit? Sure. And I think you've covered it pretty well, but uh, languages, the words we use is very important. And uh, of course it's simple and an easy tool to use uh, law enforcement and what police officers represent as a lever to encourage good behavior. Um but more importantly, law enforcement is there to help people. Uh, that's why I became a police officer. That's why my friends became police officers was in the end, we want to help people not be a lever for good behavior. And uh, so if kids are inculcated with that idea that police officers are ju there just to strong arm them into some scenario or something to be feared uh, to compel good behavior, then uh, uh, it really takes away from the, what the real purpose of a police officer is, which is to help you when you need it. Yeah. Do you by by and large feel that kids are, are generally pretty like excited to see law enforcement or do you see instances where some of those negative stigmas that parents plant actually plays a role in it? Or does it just depend on the background, like, and some of the traumas and experiences that they've had through life? Well, there are all sorts of things that play into it and how, law enforcement have interacted with kids and their parents. And, uh, you know, there are some police officers and media who, uh, continue that stereotypic behavior. So mm -hmm. there are a lot of things to play into it. I think, especially in our community, the overwhelming majority of people appreciate and are friendly to and enjoy seeing their police officers. Yes. So yes. we, I know I, for we, one, I still don't, I still get a little like <laughs> lump in my throat when I see one behind me. It's just a me natural too. thing. You know what I mean? John actually will tease me sometimes like on the coming up the driveway, he'll flip on his lights and I know it's him, but it still triggers this like, Oh my gosh, I'm in trouble. But well, I've know. talked to the supervisor about that. So. <laughs> Oh, all joking aside, actually, in terms of stigmas and um, I guess stereotypes, there's always been kind of this um, perception that law enforcement and the fire department don't necessarily have a very good relationship. Is that a fair stereotype? I don't think that's true at all. And I, my current role as an arson investigator, I get to work with the SPD guys a lot. And, you know, the patrol officers I get to deal with are excellent. They're mm -hmm. really, really good guys. And and sometimes, you know, we'll get called on a citizen complaint or something else that may have happened later, you know, earlier in the morning or yesterday. And so I go out and discern whether or not we have a crime. Right. And I call these guys and, and they're busy, man. You know, they, you know, somebody caused, you know, 
a 12 inch square to be blackened on the concrete or next to a building. Um, and the thing of it is, is that they understand like I do that we're looking at the, the potential, right? And, and why did this person do this? We're looking at, uh, you know, not the amount of damage that was done, but the amount that, uh, or the potential, um, or the intent, the intent of what they're doing. So that's where they understand it. And that's like, that's where we develop a kinship in that regard. Cause like I said, uh, the detectives we work with, the major crimes are really, really good. Uh, and we've had some, you know, leadership changes and each one's got their own different deal. But I mean, honestly, we, uh, I appreciate the work they do. And I didn't have a, a real picture of it until obviously I got to know Matt and, and saw what some of the patrol officers have to go through and the things that they deal with. And I really developed a, a lot of respect for it because, um, you know, they have a hard job. They have a hard job. People, they show up at people's worst times at times. So it's kind of, it's kind of sad. You guys both do. Well, we do. You guys have very challenging jobs and I have just the utmost respect for all of you guys in your respective professions. I was just, part of what I want to do is we're talking about stigmas and stereotypes. And one of the things, Matt, if I actually bring up the movie um, Transformers, how does that make you feel as a law enforcement officer? Do you, have you ever seen Transformers? Uh, yeah, but it's been a while. Most, the very first most. one. The very first one. <laughs> Because I just remember I mean, the actress. Really. Oh, oh, yeah, she is beautiful. We were just talking about her the other day. But most, I, most movies portray officers as, uh, you know. Well, the Decepticon in, yeah. well, actually, the Decepticon in that, actually, on the side of the police car, it says to punish and enslave. And he's the bad guy. And so I use, actually, that clip um, because then the good guy transformer is the fire rescue truck, right? <laughs> right. And so John's kind of like, yeah, well, you know, everybody loves a fireman. And I'm just kind of like, but it really bothered me once we saw start talking about perceptions and even how movies portray law enforcement officers. Um, you know, my children, so, you know, Tyler and, you know, actually, you know, all of my children. Um, but one of the funny things about Tyler is we've had been friends with you for a long time. He's always known you just as, you know, our friend Matt. And then the one time he saw you in uniform, he had never, you know, he was young, so he had never put two and two together that you were a police officer and you showed up at an event and you were in uniform and he didn't want to look at you. And he was like, I said, it's Matt. And it took him a long time to connect the dots that that was your job. And even today, I think Tyler, when you have your uniform on and he's interacting with you, he behaves a lot differently with you. Um, but then when we have Caleb, he has high functioning autism and he was terrified. Uh, he of course gets along great with you without a uniform on, but it, it took some getting used to the fact that when you have a uniform on, he still has a natural fear of you and you want to know where it stemmed from. He watched a Dunkin' Donuts commercial where this guy is just stand, sitting outside eating this delicious donut. And then this police officer runs and tackles him for his donut because of the stereotype <laughs> about cops and donuts, la, la, la. And so he, for the longest time, he was like afraid to eat donuts outside of the house because he was worried that a police officer would tackle him for his donut. Because for him, he has a hard time separating, you know, these commercials and TV shows and different things. But what about the Lego movie? Did you ever watch the Lego movies with your kids? The first Lego movie. Yeah, but it's been a while. I just okay. remember that uh, everything is awesome. Everything, yes, everything is song, awesome. Uh, just the other day when things were not awesome. Yes, exactly. <laughs> but in that show, in that movie, which I think every kid in America has seen, there was the police officer 
um, who then also paid, played the bad cop. So he was good cop personality oh, and then bad cop personality. Switch. His face would switch. Yeah. And that really threw Caleb off because he couldn't quite figure out this, you know, when his head would spin around and he was just had the happy smiley face in the police uniform. But then it would turn around with the shaded glasses where he had the sunglasses on and the scowl. And now all of a sudden he becomes the bad cop. So that threw us off for a while, but it really made me more cognizant about just, again, if the kids are watching Caleb in particular, particularly is watching a certain show and they're not depicting these people that um, are supposed to be there to help us. We have to make sure that we're spending time talking about um, this is just a TV show and this is a movie and really being purposeful about improving his perception of law enforcement. And you've always said to like, when I talk to Kayla, well, if you follow instructions, you'll never be hurt by a law enforcement officer. If you just do what you're being asked, there would never be a reason why you would ever be hurt by a police officer because you just have to follow instructions. Are you good with following instructions? And Caleb's always like, yes, I'm great at following instructions. I'm like, perfect. So you don't need to be worried. Yeah, I would hope so. And of course, uh, you know, police officers are just like everybody else. We make mistakes. And uh, especially in the media, they're plenty of opportunities for us to see examples of uh, behavior that we very much are upset with. And a lot of that is time specific, person specific and situation specific. So. Um, and the key to keep in mind is when we see some of those bad situations involving law enforcement officers, that is not in Spokane. That is not necessarily in our hometown. And so we have to be putting some of that into perspective because when stuff like that goes viral, usually somebody reaches out to me and wants me to like talk from the special needs community about how this impacts the special needs world. And the biggest thing I always say is you have to put in perspective that this isn't our hometown. Um, and you know, it's a learning opportunity for everybody. That's those bad situations do create change and opportunity for us to then talk, um, and create training so that we can improve situations. Okay. So, um, I actually also have another person joining me. Um, we didn't introduce her in the beginning because she was coming a little bit late to this and we wanted to get started. Um, so I have Reagan joining me. You may recognize Reagan because she has participated in other podcasts in the past because you are also a special needs mom I am. and, but your position that you do professionally is I am a 911 call receiver and trainer. Yes. Yes. So, um, first of all, uh, when we talk about wandering and eloping, you do have some experience um, on a personal level with your own child. So, can you just relay that story for us so that way people just understand that you live this world as well? I as do. Not only receiving the calls, but this is your life. Yeah. So, my daughter Lucy uh, has severe level three autism. Um, and when she was two years old, I was at work in my comm center doing my job. And our babysitter had taken her to the park and had taken her eyes off of her. And Lucy wandered off. And for anybody who knows Lucy, she will bolt the second oh, she's fast. you take your eyes off of her. And she and you can't even let her get very many steps away from you because she's, she's fast. fast so lightning. you got to have your running shoes you do. on. And so she did not pay attention. It was at a school um, that she lost her at. And so when she realized that she was missing, um, she called 911 and I didn't take the call. Thank goodness. But, um, my supervisor had said, you need to go home. Your babysitters lost Lucy. And so, um, police were dispatched out Valley police were, um, they got to her before I did cause I was further away. 
Um, she was not afraid of them at all. They picked her right up. She was two. So she had crawled through a fence in the school and was in a vacant lot. She had a big gash on her arm because she'd gone through bushes. I mean, Lucy's tough. She had stickers all up in her hair and she just was, I don't think she knew she was lost. Um, but for any parent with a child with severe autism, it's the scariest thing you'll ever go through. She's nonverbal. Um, at that age, she was functional at about like six months old. Not afraid of cars, not afraid of other people, not afraid of animals, um, not able to communicate anything. So I was put into the shoes of a mother, you know, that calls us um, hysterical because their very vulnerable child is is missing. So, so let's go ahead and talk through what a call looks like. So mom or dad, um, you know, okay, we have we cannot locate our child, don't have eyes on there. We've now spent, um, let's just say 15 minutes looking. So we searched the house. We looked at, you know, just briefly around the neighborhood. Um, we decide, okay, we're making that call. And so ring a ding ding Reagan is the one that's going to get the call. So what type of conversation do you have then with the parent? So the very th- first thing we're asking is where was the child last seen? Um, our job is to get that over to our dispatchers as quickly as possible so they can start dispatching that out. So I'm getting some very rough information. So where were they last seen and how many minutes ago did you last see them? And my very first entry into dispatch is this many minutes ago, this child was seen here and I send it over so they can start help that way. After that is done, then we start getting more information on the child. So out of curiosity, because, um, again, I have, you know, Isaac foundation, John and I do a lot of training with different regions. Even we go to other States to do training for first response. Um, and we have trained search and rescue and I will tell you search and rescue hates when, um, parents wait a long time before they actually call in for help because they're saying their search area exponentially grows per minute. Um, but yet, you know, the reason why parents don't, and because you're Reagan, a parent and John, you're a parent, we, it, it, them wandering off is something that happens often enough that we're not, it's terrifying, but we're not terribly surprised. And so we have kind of a system for all the things that we do first and foremost, because we feel bad about having to call 911 and get others involved in searching for our child. Right. And our and kids so, go like any small child. It's not even a small child with autism or a regular or an under, a bigger child with autism, but children get into everything. And oh, so I've so talked to parents who are frantic and I'm working through a call with them and kid pops out of a cupboard or is in the dog kennel or behind a curtain. And those are things that we ask them, like, have you looked absolutely everywhere? Cause you don't know. And those are things that I think a lot of us autism parents like think, Oh gosh, where did they escape to? And that's just it. So what is your, as a dispatcher, what would be your rule of thumb as a dispatcher and a parent Mm -hmm. of a child with autism? Mm -hmm. What's just your, and this is no, no rule that we're saying has to be followed, but like, what's your kind of, preference for how long should a family wait before they actually call in? There really is no harder, fast rule to it. I would uh, think it's situational. So if you are in public, let's say a park or a school or a common place like Walmart or something like that, I wouldn't wait too long. Oh, gosh, I'm no. waiting I'm a with couple you. of minutes and I'm calling um, because again, I, my child is super fast and yes, search and rescue is right. The longer you wait, the longer the perimeter is. If it's from a home, then I'm probably going to take a little bit longer. I'm going to be a little more thorough because I'm going to be searching everything, including my cars in the driveway, in the garage, um, things like that. 
um, yeah. before Outbuildings. I call. So maybe 10, 15 minutes, but still not very long. That's even okay. a little bit longer. But I know yeah. it seems like a century. Although when you have a child that you can't put eyes on, it's like minute. It's just like time flies. And then all of a sudden you lose track of how much time has actually oh, yeah. taken. Yeah. How yeah. Matt, what's your feeling on that? Do you have any? I do have a little bit of insight. Okay. Uh, from my perspective, it would it would be based off a situation only, if or mostly situation, because I would hate to have somebody looking down at their watch and say, "Oh, I, this amount of time hasn't elapsed." But if your front door's open, your gate's open, your dog's gone, and your child is gone, then you'd be calling right away. And uh, so, check what's familiar. Check your house. Check the area if you want to drive around the house because you think they could be in there and that would be a useful way of finding your child quickly, then do that. Uh, otherwise, call for help. Yeah. One thing we also have pointed out in the past is that if your child is one that will leave regardless of whether there's shoes on their feet, it's not going to really help you. But if you have a child that is never going to leave their house without their shoes on, that is a really First thing that you can do is check to see if their shoes are in the house, because again, that can give you some additional information that's helpful to provide to dispatchers and, and individuals involved in the search. All right. So um, you've provided the initial information. So now I'm guessing that Matt's department is aware of the fact that we have a missing yep. child. Okay. And then Reagan, you're then getting more information. Yeah. And yeah. what types of questions are you so then asking? So we're asking the child's full name and date of birth, their race. Height, weight is approximate as they can get. Um, their clothing description, and we tend to get pretty detailed in the clothing description as much as we can, um, all the way down to their shoes. And, you know, if it's a ninja turtle on their shirt, we want to know. Um, uh, and then what we want to know is, um, you know, is there a place that they like to go? So if they're so at you do home, ask those questions. Like, do they have any friends in the neighborhood? Do they have any places they gravitate to? Um, and we're asking those types of questions. We're also looking on our maps to see if there's any pools in the area, if they're on the spectrum, because children on the spectrum are gravitate to water. And so do, yeah. we're looking for that kind of stuff, too. Do you ask families whether or not their children are drawn to traffic? Because I have to be honest, just in terms of training world, um, we want to make sure that first responders and even parents understand that while water can is is the most common cause of death for you know, kids with autism under the age of 13, more parents have actually um, on surveys said that they've had more close calls with traffic um, versus water, because while be it, some of them are attracted to water, they're like what you said, no personal safety. And so in terms of all the intersections that a child would cross in order to get to a location or a place that's of interest, um, it's interesting to me that more parents will respond that they're, they have that traffic is a concern for us. It's, um, find a parking lot or like certain types of vehicles because he is very drawn yeah. to certain makes and models yep. of vehicles. And so that would be the first thing. Like if we ever had to do that, it's like, uh, you know, Chevy pickup trucks, um, GMCs and, um, Rams, Dodge Rams, you know, Cummins in particular, if you can find, if there's Cummins vehicles anywhere, that would be what we're looking for. Matt, you're just, you're smiling because are you probably not surprised he gets that from his dad? Um, but um, so those are things. So um, what other things are you guys then looking for? We're, um, I'm also going into, yeah, most parents are pretty um, vocal about their child being on the spectrum. Um, and they'll let us know that. So I'm getting into, are they nonverbal? Um, 
and sensory issues and are they afraid of people and you know we don't want to like have police coming full lights and sirens if that's going to scare the child and so if yeah. they can tell us stuff like that we can relay that to dispatch who can tell the officers um to maybe kill your lights and or your sirens or maybe that attracts them i mean lucy Correct. lucy is totally yes. if you flip your light rack on she will come right over to you um it's so it's like true that actually it, that's exactly yep. it it's like bees to honey mm-hmm. it's like there are some we had talked a little bit earlier that sometimes their uniform and their vehicle can actually be something that can draw them in For because sure. that is definitely a novelty sure. um when we're talking about um i mean how many calls a day do you think like your dispatch office receives in terms of wandering children and i'm leading into something reagan and actually you were part of an online discussion because i did tag you in this um, one of the things is, you know, um, families are getting really get frustrated when we have older loved ones over a certain age, like teenagers. Mm-hmm. And so when that call comes in that they're missing, sometimes the response is a little bit different. And so you were really, so can you talk about the difference? Why all of a sudden the age of the child becomes a little bit different in terms of how they then dispatch people to start lurk, searching for their loved ones? Oh, I'm glad you brought that up because that is, um, a difference. So our policy says that each child over the age of 14 that runs away from home or leaves their home um, may be considered a runaway. And so it's very important for a parent that has a child on the spectrum to let us know that their child functions under that age level if they do. Um, Because otherwise that is detailed information that then they're missing because you have protocols. If the child is over a certain age, these are different kind of set of questions that you might ask or you might treat it differently. So it's not always an active search for a child over the age of 14. They can care for themselves. A lot of times a neurotypical child over the age of 14 can care for themselves. They can feed themselves. They know how to stay out of traffic and away from strangers. And they have some personal safety, right? Well, if you've got a 14-year-old that functions as an 8-year-old, that's a missing child. That's a different yes. situation. That would be an active search for. So parents need to be child. really cognizant of telling them their chronological age, but then letting dispatch know what their developmental function Correct. age is. That is really it's, important. Information. It's actually super important because that can determine the difference between an officer response and them saying, oh, just call crime check and do a runaway report. Um, Correct. And so there was an online conversation about it. And I was like, I'm going to have to take my good friend Reagan because I feel like maybe we need to have a conversation. And I think parents need to understand that. And I I don't think that every person at 911 is um, very good about asking and probing into those questions because they just don't have the life experience. And so we do try to train that. I definitely train that as a trainer, Um, but not everybody gets that and not they just don't have a frame of reference, I guess. Exactly. So, yeah. Super important. Okay. I just wanted to make sure that that was yeah. on my little it's, note card here. We wanted to make sure. Even when you clarify. call 911, you have to advocate for your child. Yes, you, know? you really yeah. do. Okay. So I'm bump, bumping over here to Matt. So now you have the information. And so what does it look like then when you guys are going out into the community and actively looking for a child that would be on the autism spectrum? Well, because I'm guessing it's a little bit different. Would you handle the call differently if you knew that this was a, a child with a disability versus a neurotypical right. eight-year-old? So initially the call would come into the dispatch center as a missing child. and. Uh, one of the very first things that the dispatchers and the first responding officers are going to be trying to determine regardless of the child is the nature of the call. So that's really the core, core of what the very first moments are going to be. And that will include uh, just uh, 
breaking down, whether it's a neurotypical child, a runaway, um, a lost child, a runaway, or a criminal act. And uh, if there are additional circumstances that would rise to make people think that there's more danger involved. So with missing children in, uh, in particular, not a runaway. So take runaways out of the equation of a neurotypical child who's maybe upset with his mom or something. Um, if you take runaways out of the picture, uh, a supervisor will be notified and that supervisor will then decide uh, how many resources to commit to it. Um, it would be very unusual for uh, police officers to re respond to a missing child lights and sirens uh, unless... Because that's considered a code, right. which we is would, over... Would yeah, a pure yeah. emergency or yeah. some exigency. So if someone was reporting uh, a kidnapping, then we would respond to that faster. And we may even lock down mm -hmm. an entire neighborhood and start checking vehicles as they're leaving. Uh, but uh, for a lost child or a... Um, a disabled child who's wandered away from home, then our response is going to be a little slower because probably eight times out of 10, we're finding the child while we're, before we even reach the house. So the, the very, the, the important information that's relayed to dispatch and the call takers at crime check, that will help the officers uh, find the child quickly. So, and decide where they're going to look based on some of the information that you've right. obtained. Now, sometimes if you don't necessarily get the information that you feel is pertinent from dispatch, will you then interact with the family to ask more specific questions? Yeah. So initially questions? we'll have at least one officer respond to the house where it's occurring. So a lot of times we get calls where it's a family friend who's calling in and the family members are actually out looking. And that's a not a great scenario for us because the people with the information are not, we're not able to contact them. So say you've driven around the block, you can't find your child, go home and stay there and wait for police officers. It's going to be hard. It's going to be nerve wracking. But in order for us to help you efficiently, it ha you have to be at home. You have to be. So a parent or caregiver really needs to be the one providing the direct Absolutely. information. So officers are going to arrive on scene and they're going to do something that's a, maybe a little unusual and uh, unexpected and uncomfortable. and uncomfortable, which is we're going to check your house. If you've called us to find a missing child, we're going to check your house and uh, we're going to look in anything Every that a child can fit in. Dishwashers, garbage cans, uh, closets, dryers, drawers, stuff along those lines. One, because uh, they could be in distress and unable to respond. Two, there could be a criminal act involving a child that we might be able to save. Or uh, three, they've fallen asleep in a drawer and we just find them. We've actually had that happen. Maria, parent number one, mm -hmm. said that in one instance, um, Josiah was so upset because he was left with a babysitter that he went into his closet and pulled a bunch of clothes on himself while he was crying and he fell asleep. But he was under a heap yep. of and clothes. And we found kids on our we second search of the house because things yeah. didn't add up and we couldn't find an escape route. And then Where's the most unique place that you found a kid? the bed that the parents were sitting on talking to the officer. Oh, my, oh my goodness. <laughs> Oh my goodness. Wow. Wow. The stories you guys could share. Okay. So next so, uh, step. When the officers come and talk to you at your house, along with checking the house, they're going to want a current photograph, which fortunately in the digital age is real easy to get because everybody's taking pictures of everything all the time. So that photograph is very important. 
So even if you knew that your child was had a wandering risk, take their picture once a week or daily, right? It's not like you can't go back and May I pause you right now? We during our very first autism walk that I was involved in, which was right along the water of all things, but it was in the valley and um we had um, some a mom put her child um, in the care of another mom who because she had to go home and grab something. Well, the mom got distracted that was supposed to be watching him because it was an autism walk. And um, lo and behold, he disappears. And so it was a while before I was told as the coordinator of the event that he was missing. And then, of course, the question what I was immediately I was the one that called 911. So to what you're saying is so true, because I'm the one calling 911. And we did have Valley Fire Department on scene because they were there just doing community action stuff. So I ran to them and told them what had happened. And then we, you know, they were talking to dispatch. But the question to me was, what's he wearing? So I had to ask this person that was put in response and she says, well, I don't know now because he had taken off his sweatshirt and it was sitting in the park and he was not attached to it. And anyway, it's one of those things too, where it was, you know, again, trying to give information, but you know what I did? Cause they were like, we need a picture. I went to her, the mom's Facebook page and I started going through and I'm like, here's some, cause she posted a lot on social media. And that was my immediately, my immediate go-to was social media is going to have pictures of this child. And that was where. I found a bajillion pictures to send to everybody because mom's not on mom. Hasn't even been told that the child has been is missing, but anyway, social media, it's yeah. a blessing. And so all, during all this time, there's going to be a triage process that occurs. And a lot of that is going to be, uh, if they left their sweatshirt at home and it's 30 degrees out or it's 40 degrees out and raining, uh, those are real critical life endangering issues. And so, especially if they're nonverbal, I uh, can't remember or, can't communicate phone numbers or things along those lines, then we'll start dedicating more and more resources. And as resources become available off other critical calls, then they'll be routed to help out. And so that's where communicating with the officer on scene when they get there and being prepared in advance will really help. So finding out what the clothing they're wearing and what their risk is will help us determine what tools uh, to use. The other thing that might be important, especially with uh, children who are affected by autism is what kind of things do they respond pleasantly to? Uh, it, gum, if they're offered a reward like gum or sticker, will that help them cooperate with the officers when they contact them? Or are they going to run from the officers? So if we have that information, then when we first see them, we can stand off, have the parents come to us, and then just release the child into the care of the parents at that point. And that, that, sure. you know, under some circumstances, there may not be any law enforcement involvement with that kid at all that they're aware of. Well, and we do have some parents that will say we really don't want to call the police because the police presence is a trigger for them. And so it's just going to make things worse. How do you feel about conversations about that where I'm not going to call and tell someone that my child is missing? And then the question is, well, can't you send the fire department? And the fire department is really not set up for this kind of response. Correct. They will in case there's a medical need because there's an injury, but they're not involved in the search. Am I right, John? No, you're exactly right. And that's the thing is oftentimes uh, officers, when they find someone, they call us for a medical eval. We're really not involved, at least in our jurisdiction here in Spokane. Now, some of the surrounding agencies are more rural. They do have a search and rescue component, so they're more involved in that side of it. But here in Spokane, um, you know, the officers can be at a location pretty quickly and and they've got specialized, you know, you've heard these these guys mentioned the specialized questions that they ask the 
the parents and things like that. And we're not really trained in that regard. Correct. And so that is one thing that I have parents say, why can't you just send the fire department out to search for my child? And that's, again, just so we're just making sure that we're answering questions here. The reason why is because the training that's involved um, and the resources. And we're able so. to saturate the area quickly. And, uh, you know, the supervisor, because the, the complainant or the parent guardian is going to relay it to the officer. The officer is going to relay the pertinent information to additional units. Uh, with electronic photographs, or even if you have a real photograph, we're able to get that electronically and send that all to all law enforcement in the area, media outlets if we need to. We're able to do a reverse 911 to the area if we need people uh, to wake up and look out their doors. Um, uh, the the supervisor will be able to call out uh, a drone, an uh, unmanned aerial vehicle to help uh find them. And that's especially helpful in the areas near the Spokane river where we're concerned mm -hmm. that they might've gone to the river or it's cold out. We need to find them quick in the cold. Um, we're able to communicate with Spokane public schools. Where do their friends live? Uh, ST or what schools do they go to? Where would they frequent? STA. Uh, they have cameras on all their buses and it is not unusual for us to find a child based off of photographs, that the, or digital video that the buses take as they move through the area and or just they communicate it out to their drivers to be on the lookout and the, lo and behold, the kids on their bus seven miles That's the thing. These, I know these kids are very resourceful when it's it comes to just how they... For them to get mm -hmm. on buses and just be gone. So that's one of the reasons why it's so important to call sooner rather than later. And we've gotten calls where it's two hours later Children like to wander by the river and uh, they live just five blocks cringy. away from the river. So it's really spooky. So the faster we get information, the faster we get resources on scene, the more likely we are to have a positive outcome. And fortunately, in my 22 years, it's been positive outcome. Positive. Yes. I will say that too, because Lord knows we, yeah, I agree. Um, so then, like I said, John or Matt just mentioned that... In all the years that you've been on the force, you've had positive reuniting of the child or loved one with their parents, caregivers. But here's one thing that happens at times. And another reason why parents are afraid or caregivers are afraid to call is um, CPS involvement, because there is that association with neglect and inattentiveness when it comes to caring for these individuals. So and this may not be a question that you guys can even answer for me, but um I at the Isaac Foundation have had to talk to CPS just to, you know, as a character, like, what do you know about this family? You know, is this a chronic issue? Blah, 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 blah. Um, so how does CP or do you even know how does CPS then become involved? Is it an automatic or is it by um, your guys's discretion and where you feel like we need to like look further? On, on our side, I hope I'm not putting side, you on the spot. This is a real okay. Simple question, and I would hope it would be an encouraging question for the people. Law enforcement would only get child protective service, services involved under a few certain circumstances. One is we believe there's criminal activity afoot, or kids are being harmed by the parents or or their environment, and rightly so. Child protective services should be involved there to protect those kids. Uh, the other would be if. Uh, the parents are so destitute that they're complete, they're incapable of providing the care that's needed and CPS might be able to get, 
relay them to services. Because while CPS is an arm of the government, like the police, their root purpose for being is to help people. So that yes. is a so positive aspect awesome. of that. And they can also pay through the right channels. They can pay for GPS monitoring because it is a monthly service, which is not possible for families. Some families cannot afford to pay that subscription. They can't afford a cell phone, let alone then a GPS device that's on the child to help yeah. keep them located. if that's located. the case, then I would ask the police to refer them to CPS because yes. that's such and an incredible tool. Yes, it so much is. But again, when you're talking about a $40 a month, you know, fee for like AngelSense is one that we talked in part one about AngelSense being a really um, fantastic tool. I understand there is a cost associated with that. So that is one positive piece about why, you know, we, you know, a referral would be beneficial. So, And I've been in homes where people are trying to come up with creative solutions to overcome um, violent behavior from children or uh, escaping tendencies. And sometimes that involves rooms that are plywood, that, right? And yes. have, and have complex locks, locks. Or, or something along those lines. That is not necessarily a trigger for CPS to be. Because you guys are trained as to why those tools are necessary in order to keep our loved ones safe. So that's not necessarily a, something that a parent should be concerned that, oh my gosh, they're going to see the locks in our house and they're going to call CPS. Now, don't be surprised if an officer stumbles upon that, that you don't get follow-up questions or, hey, I'm going to look a little closer at your child, make sure he has all this, you're not, you know, that abuse is not occurring and they're well, well fed. And then the next yes. meal. And understand this is intended to keep your child safe. And again, you guys are an arm of the government and this is a system that is set up to try and protect children. And the sad reality of this is while we do our best as autism parents to keep our child safe, um, unfortunately there is child abuse that does happen when you have a very severely impacted child and not everybody has the skills and tools to appropriately right. take those care are of those some of the children that we won't talk about today because we're not going to talk about them. Yeah. We are not going to talk about them. I really, I don't even want to think about it. So trust me, I probably know my now, fair share. So uh, to go on to those referrals, if I am on the street and uh, I'm working with the Isaac foundation now to expand some of these capabilities. So it's not just when I'm out, but uh, we're more, we're a hundred times more likely to refer parents with autistic kids who wander to the Isaac foundation than child protective services. Yes, that so is very really true. at the heart of the matter is kind of what we started off with, which is uh, the police officers are there for the purpose of helping facilitating the next time the, the happy resolution. So. Perfect. Um, John, I have some questions for you because um, John has been my partner um, just in terms of first response world. It wasn't when we Isaac Foundation started going to um, pursuing training for first responders. It was understand it was not the intent because like, oh, my gosh, Spokane is so dysfunctional. We need training. It was that as parents and people that work in this sector, more training is always better. Right. Like, why not get ahead of this as opposed to respond because something um not awesome has happened. And so John, you were actually the one that I was wanting to do a park day where we would bring kids and get them used to the first responders in their uniform in the, a day in the park. And that was when you said, you know what? Training is really, 
truly the better option because first responders really just need more information so that that way, because that's really the, a big piece of it. Part of it, I want to segue because I only have a few more minutes before I have to wrap up. Um, I want to talk about the Isaac alert piece because we call it an Isaac alert here in Spokane. Um, and that actually came just from a brainstorm session because so talk a little bit about what a caution note is in terms of fire department. So in the, in the fire department where we have some buildings that have uh, construction issues or holes in the floors or something that's going to be unsafe for our guys to enter. Uh, and the way we register those addresses is through a caution note. And those things uh, uh, are generally set up for a predetermined amount of time uh, by the battalion chiefs. Uh, you know, a company officer will see something, say, hey, chief, we got this place. It's, you know, torn all to pieces. Homeless people have gotten in and burned holes in the floor. Be careful. Be careful. So we send, like, the, send caution. the issues out. Caution and, is needed. So in thinking about that, uh, Jay Atwood, who was the chief uh, at the fire dispatch out there, we sat down one day and we were talking about it. And I said, Jay, what are, what are the chances we can take a separate caution note and morph it into something for our populations, right? For special, for special, special needs, needs population. population. Right? So, um, and he said, yeah, that sounds great. And he his input was, well, we don't want too much information on there, but we want important information. So we morphed it into what it is currently. And it's uh, and he was actually the one that suggested calling it an Isaac alert because then through training with like, um, so this isn't an ego thing, I promise you, um, an Isaac alert, because they didn't want it to be called an autism alert or a Down syndrome alert, something that they could then search and see how many were being used, how many were registered, um, you know, and so Isaac alert was just what he, so it would go in the system, Isaac alert, and there's only six things that families can register um, if they go through the Isaac Foundation. And so this is where you go to the Isaac Foundation website. I'll put it in this podcast and um, you're registering your address. And the six things that you can register is if your child is a wandering risk, because sometimes the fire department is there doing a medical call for mom, dad, grandpa, whatever, and it spooks them or it just is an opportunity for them to sneak out a door. So wandering, uh, if they're a wandering risk, if they can be combative under stress, um, yeah, if they yeah, if their child has um yeah, if they're nonverbal, if they can answer questions, whether or not they'll respond to verbal questions, because sometimes they're verbal, but they won't necessarily respond to questions. That's actually a distinction. Also, um the two other ones, one is important is whether there are modifications inside the home to doors, windows um, that would inhibit that you would, as a fire rescue team coming in, would need to know in well, order Matt to be able to search. You said, that, you know, there may be some things that they're aware of as well that present yeah. a, pro a special problem. And that you're right. aware of going in, well, oh, there's like, you know, um, interior doors and window access issues that would cue the fire, the police department that, oh, okay, so they have locks potentially on windows and doors. The other one is whether or not um, there's a physical limitation that would mean that that person would not be able to exit the structure without assistance, because obviously that's important. Um, so we've been doing it now, gosh, six, seven years. Um, it's done through the Isaac Foundation. They extend them. So what happens is you, you register this information, your address, your name, your child's name, age, you can check the boxes for which of these apply. And then it then sends me an alert. And then I export the spreadsheet um, periodically to my good friend Reagan here on the dispatch side. And so it's just an Excel spreadsheet we send over there for the Isaac alerts, and then they get entered on the dispatch end. Yeah, they have to get entered into two systems. So first, it's got to go through law enforcement's um, system, and then it goes over to fire system, because um, they do not talk to each other. So we call them pins over in law. Um, and so they will get entered into both of those systems. One thing you may want to know is that they are only good for a year. 
Correct. And Isaac Foundation. Yep. And so at 11 months, Isaac Foundation website will ping you with an email saying your Isaac alert is going to expire on this date. Click this link to redo it again. And then system starts all over again. And so that is the, the nice thing about the Isaac Foundation system is it's an automatic from the date that you do it, 11 months, you'll get a notification so that you can get that updated. Um, and so we've been doing it for years. It's really a simple process, um, but I highly recommend anybody that's listening to this, um, take advantage of that. If you get the email that yours is expiring, understand it's not permanent. And so you need to constantly, um, if you move, if situations change, you can do it sooner um, because then you guys would just update it in your system. But it's just a good tool um, to definitely take advantage of. All right. With that, unfortunately, I got to wrap this up. I appreciate you guys being here. Um, hopefully we covered everything. We may even do a part three at some point because you never know. Um, sometimes once this hits the air and then people have additional questions, um, it becomes thought provoking and then we expand into it a little bit further. So I appreciate that you guys took time out of your day to come in and be a part of um, my little podcast. And that's it for now. If you want to be notified of our next podcast release, be sure to hit subscribe and just remember we're all in this together. So find your tribe and hold them tight.